Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no holds barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. So this is part two of the podcast where we are discussing ORRP, that stands for the Opioid Rapid Response Program. And Bev was the first person to find out about this program that nobody knew about. What are we discussing today, Bev? Part one, it was like an intro to it. We, I, I broke down how we found out about it and what happened where we were banned from their little webinar and the FOIA we submitted. So I went through all of those details to get to this point. So this one is actually, um, the last one was intro. This is, I guess, part two. So this video is going to be the next part where we're going to listen to some recordings of clips of them uh, claiming that this program works. Yeah, I want to show people that I didn't make this up. Like they're the ones making the claims. My problem is not that the program exists. My problem is that they continue to claim that it works. And at this point, it obviously does not work. So they need to throw in the towel and start from scratch. Because at what point are they going to say, yeah, this isn't working? And you know, they're going to get settlement funds. That's the other thing. They're definitely getting settlement funds. Like I'm 99.9% sure they will because they're under overdose prevention. They're under data to action. So uh, under CDC overdose prevention, you know, they're going to get settlement funds. That's where it's going to places like this. So I I mean, at what point? And this is the other thing. Just let me say this. Yesterday, Dr. Yerling did a Twitter space about pain management. And he was acting all compassionate and kind. And Anne uh, called in Fuqua and she was like, you know, let me tell you my story. And then she was like, you know, what about the patients who are being abandoned? And he's like, oh, I totally agree. Patients should not be abandoned. We just can't, we can't just force people off their medication. And then he moved on to the next topic. I get enraged now when I hear that because we're so far past that. Okay, now Mm. we all know what's happening. What are you going to do to solve it? Like, what are the solutions? There are no, just saying it shouldn't happen. That's not really helping. That's like saying, oh yeah, we should have Narcan and then finishing it and like not ever figuring out how to get it. Is that going to save a life? I don't think so. So how about we start making a plan on what to do with these abandoned patients? Because it's only getting worse, Claudia. I'm only hearing more and more and more and more stories, you know? And they don't, they won't concede that they were wrong. They won't concede no. that what they did made everything worse. No, and he even said yesterday that if they hadn't cut back prescribing, the overdose deaths would have gone up even more, which is absolute, there's nothing to support that statement at all. Considering it was 15,000 when they they took over this country with their idiocy, and now it's 122,000 deaths. I'm pretty sure he's wrong. Because I just saw in what but state was, was it? it? But was it 15,000 or was it less? It was probably less. But let me see what, st- what state, I think it was West Virginia or Virginia. There were like eight overdoses in like a period of a week or two. I just, t- I put the article, I tweeted the article and they were all from the a fake M30 pill. So they were from a fake morphine, I guess, 30 milligram, those blue pills. So all of these kids thought that they were taking prescription opioids. And I'll tell you what they wouldn't have overdosed on if it was actually prescription opioids. So how can he say that there would be more deaths now? No, there wouldn't. See, I go to the the place of why are young people reaching for pills? They always have. I know, but is it because they're just being teenagers or is it 
how how many of these people have actual pain and nobody will help them? Well, that's another part, right? Like maybe it's for anxiety because they can't get anxiety treated, or maybe it is for pain and they can't get that treated, or maybe they're just experimenting like kids do. And in a few seconds, we're going to get into the actual podcast episode and you're going to hear the clips about opioid rapid response program. But before we play that, as always, I would like to give a quick shout out to our new patrons who have signed up to our Patreon page since the last podcast episode. A huge shout out and thank you to the following new patrons. Joanne, Elaine, Paige, Brianna, Kim, Kathy, Lance, Carrie, Susan, Cheryl, Geraldine, Shelly Ann, Laura, Kathy, Lonnie, Jennifer, Dana, Pam, Kevin, Rebecca, Holly, Nikki, Jackie, Dana, Liz, Jacqueline, Francis, Pamela, Rita, Robert, Kimberly, Roseanne, Christine, Mike, Jenny, Reaper, Jill, Gina, Gail, Christine, Melissa, Aliki, Carolyn, Mary, Kelly, Gal, Suzanne, Mike, Stephen, Nick, Cameron, Kathy, Joel, Jana, Paula, Diane, Micah, Betty, Dorothy, Amber, Heather, Sanjay, Heather, Sarah, Desiree, Rebecca, Carrie, Aileen, Peter, Terry, Liz, Joshua, Dana, Cindy, Raven, and Willow. Thank you again for your support, and I hope you're enjoying the Patreon page. People are hypocrites. This is Gary Cantrell from OIG in 2019 at the Senate Finance Committee, and let's listen to what he said about and this lovely he's program. Reti- he's moved on. He's, he's moved on to industry. He does yeah. some kind of consulting for some, I forget which firm he goes to, but that's what they all do. It's a revolving door. We've also come to understand the impact of our, our enforcement work can have on the patients that we serve. We recognize that when a clinic whose patients are prescribed opioids or MAT is shut down due to law enforcement efforts, access to care can and will be disrupted. Rather than leaving these patients to potentially turn to a another fraudulent provider or street drugs to meet their needs. We believe it is vital that they have the access to quality treatment and pain management services with minimal disruption to care. But this is not something that law enforcement can do alone. Ensuring these patients have continuity of care requires a collaboration uh, with our federal, state, and local public health service officials. As part of the ARPO Appalachian Takedown, OIG and our law enforcement partners worked in close collaboration with HHS's Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, U.S. Public Health Service, and state public health agencies to deploy federal and state level strategies and resources to provide assistance to patients impacted by our law enforcement operations. Okay, so did he mince words there? Am I making it up? Stephanie said in emails that I found from FOIA where she's like, oh, she just misunderstood what the program was set to do. No, I didn't. This was 2019. I don't care that you changed names from Opioid Rapid Response Team to Opioid Rapid Response Program. You claimed, Gary Kinchell claimed in 2019 that this is what they do, right? Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find the next one. So this is the second clip. It's from the Justice Department National Opioid Summit, March of 2020. Um, it is a, it, it's been a great partnership, not only with the U.S. Attorney's offices, but right. with our partners at HHS and state. Um, Sometimes they just need to clear their throats and I can't mm. stand it, but they won't. They just let it sit right there. Why? Anyway. Uh, health 
uh, boards of health. Um, because while we're prosecutors, we're not social workers, it is important to remember that this is a public health crisis um, and it needs to be treated as such. And the DAG mentioned uh, what uh, we did as we put ARPO together was to ensure um, that patients, when they showed up at their doctor's office, as we were carting the doctor uh, away who was responsible for uh, illegal prescriptions, that those patients were treated as victims and they were, we marshaled the resources at the state level to help them get uh, treatment if that's what they wanted and certainly to direct them to a doctor uh, who was going to actually take care of them uh, and, and their medical needs as opposed to treating them um, uh, you know, like a, like a drug dealer treats uh, his victims. Your face, Claudia, you're like, that's how I feel. It's in They marshaled, they marshaled, yeah. what did he say? They marshaled in. That's Brian Benchikowski. He's the assistant. He was the assistant uh, prosecutor, assistant attorney general, whatever his name was. Wow. Um, and that was March, 2020. So once again, we certainly make sure the patients have the resources that they need. Certainly. Okay, so that was 2019. That was 2020. Let's in March. Let's go to September of 2020. This is an award that they got for ARPO. Wow, because they're so celebrated. Because they're so amazing. These people are are heroes, Claudia. Didn't you know they're heroes? And so we're really across OIG with our audit teams, with our evaluation teams and our data analytics, looking to see how we can best serve these patients who, again, I, I mentioned before, as, as being, in, in many cases, victims of these schemes. How can we get them to someone who can care for their pain or their medical needs in an appropriate way? And in some cases, ideally get them into treatment and increase the access to medication-assisted treatment, for example. So our, besides our law enforcement activity, all of OIG is focused on really trying to improve the lives of these individuals we've identified as having some need for an intervention, even though we can't directly do that. That's why in ARPO, we connected for the first time in a systematic way with public health professionals. And we worked very closely with the CDC and the Assistant Secretary for Health's office here at HHS to connect us to state health agencies who could then take the um, baton, if you will, after the um, enforcement action to try to provide additional care and a warm handoff, if you will, for these patients in need to a legitimate prescriber or treatment. All right. So there's a public health as well as a criminal element uh, and benefit to all of this. Gary Cantrell is Deputy Inspector General. So that was Gary Cantrell again, and um, he and Provoznik, the DEA agent, won an award for their amazing skills and how they served our public so greatly. And they're so proud of this part of their, their program because, Claudia, you know, they never let a patient go abandoned. So this is just remarkable. It's amazing. Right? Amazing. I wonder if they know how many patients have committed suicide because of their action. Can. They say it over the years. They keep repeating it. Do they think it's actually functioning? Do they even know it's not? Or do they care? And they just want people to think that it is so that they're not charged with murder, basically. Do we know? I mean, do you think they know? No. Because in you their mind, they, they have a mind? job to do. The ones who are saying, we make sure there's a warm hand up. We make sure patients don't go abandoned. Do they know that that's not true? Or do they actually think it's true? I don't They're know. Law, I mean, let's face it. Gary Gary Cantrell is law enforcement. But, you just, know, we... Just we not reached, with the gun. He's yeah. different law enforcement. Uh, OIG, they don't have guns. I don't even know. I don't know if they do or not. I don't know. 
I don't know either, but I do know that they work so closely with the secret assistant secretary of health, which was Admiral Rachel Levine. And she's over this program and we reached out to her. I don't know how many number of times and she doesn't find the time to ever respond because, you know, why respond to the actual patient organization that is trying to help abandoned patients when that's what their organization is supposed to do? I mean, I don't know. So this next one is uh, three months later than the last one. This is December 2020. This is ARPO again. Uh, This is a different person from ARPO. This is a podcast, Cover Two Resources, discussing ARPO. I think the other part of ARPO that we spent a lot of time on was um, if we were going to arrest 60 individuals all in the same day in April and involve several thousand patients, drug-addicted patients, we we asked ourselves early on, what would be the impact of community if you took the pill mill out, but you had the patients still drug-seeking patients moving around the area. And that causes great concern and it caused the assistant attorney general and the U.S. attorney's concern about these patients that would show up at the pill mill that day looking for their pill, the prescription for the pills, but have nowhere to go. And so we spent uh, a lot of time planning with our partners, FBI, HHS, the CDC, and, and principally state and local partners, health agencies at the local level, making sure that we had health professionals on site at each medical location for which the doctor had been arrested that morning to make sure that there was continued access of care for those patients. They were directed to legitimate doctors that could help them, or they were then, or they were then shifted to or treated that day. And the CDC was instrumental in having on-site scattered throughout mobile units that could treat patients in the event of overdoses or potential what? overdoses. Um, and I think that was part of a success story that we were very proud of, too, continuing the access of care and doing what we did on the law enforcement side on a responsible way, understanding that many of these patients would need help that day. And I think that was something we were very proud of. That's impressive. What a liar. That's impressive. Yeah. And what see, that's, a liar. They all say it. So I do know, and we'll hear, we'll listen to later. We're getting through these pretty quickly. So maybe we could do the next section also. Um, the next section I have set, the next part of the podcast is a recording of five or six different clips where they said different ways ORRP can help. And so one of the ways they say is mobile units. I do think they had it one time that I can find where they did have mobile units for people to prescribe mat like Suboxone. I don't know if they prescribed any pain medication at all, but as far as I know, that I've only found one case where they actually did use mobile units, but they they repeated as though this is just a regular occurrence. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Mobile like, units. They took there's a kernel of truth to what they say. Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, their program would be amazing. You know of a, of a doctor that's going to be taken down. You figure out how many patients they have, right? You call the local emergency rooms. You deploy the local state action. There's a there's there's a plan in, in place for mm-hmm. when this happens, mm-hmm. and they unroll that plan. You get doctors to come on site who have access to the PDMP that could then prescribe bridge scripts that can get them in with other doctors so patients blah, 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 right? For people mm-hmm. on, on Suboxone, you get them to other Suboxone doctors, make sure they have Naloxone. All of that's amazing, except it doesn't work. You know what it, it doesn't? Except it never worked, unless it, might, it was for yeah. addicts, unless addicts' doctors were closed down. 
That's They're right. They're fucking liars. I know. That's the problem. And they were so Ooh. hostile. They were so hostile to us, you and me, when we called for help. So hostile. And this is my question that I want to ask. And I ask it all the time. But of course, I'm just talking to myself, so I never get an answer. I want to know why Ed Bish and Nan Golden and all of these people who are looked at as victims of Purdue, why are they allowed to be so angry? Why are they allowed to rant and rave and everyone cheers them on and they're looked at as victims? But pain patients are not looked at as victims. They are not looked at as oppressed. They are not allowed to be angry. We have to place live in this little box where we're like, thank you so much for even talking to me today. And right. we're not allowed to be angry. Well, you know what? I am angry and I'm angry because I hear from people every single day who were stable and are now talking about ending their lives that have little children and had jobs and homes and careers and families and friends. And they've lost everything because the DEA shut down a clinic. What about Anne? Anne has congestive heart failure that I don't know is reversible because her doctor was shut down and she had to, she can't even, she's in a wheelchair, Claudia. She had to take an Uber every day to a methadone clinic just so she would have some pain relief and not go full through complete withdrawal. Thankfully, a doctor took her because if they didn't, I don't know if she would still be alive. I really don't. What about those patients? Why are we not allowed to be angry on their behalf? Why? Who and, made and, the and rules? They'll 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 make it sound like well these these patients they don't they don't know any better. Just put them on Suboxone and shut them up. See, and you heard him when we shut down a clinic and we have thousands of drug addicted patients. No, you don't have thousands of drug addicted patients, idiot. You don't have thousands of drug addicted patients. You might have a certain percent, three percent, five percent, who developed an addiction, and then you can offer them Suboxone, but they still need their pain treated. Newsflash: if you, even if you have an addiction, you still need your pain treated. So I don't know what you're talking about drug addicted patients. I mean, give me a break. Like I'm so tired of hearing the same narrative and they never stop. So that was December, 2020. So this next clip, let me look up. I always forget what ASTO stands for. This next clip was from 2021. It was at a joint ASTO ORRP webinar. ASTO stands for the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. So ASTO is a nonprofit that somehow became responsible or took it upon themselves or were funded to create um, a, a brochure or a document for when clinics close, how to help patients. And they do these tabletop role-playing exercises where they get people together and they play games to decide this is what we're going to do when clinics close. So while they're, and when I did talk to them, I did get mad. I was like, so you're, while you're playing games, I'm trying to keep people from blowing their heads off. Like that's, right. that's great. So this was a, a video in 2020 that Asto did, and they were just um, trying to explain what ORRP is. The CDC's Opioid Rapid Response Program, or ORRP. Um, so this is a, if you're not familiar with what this is, this is a, I provided a link for you so you can look it up as well. Um, so it's an interagency uh, coordinated federal effort to mitigate drug overdose risk among patients impacted by law enforcement, act, enforcement actions that disrupt um, access to prescription opioids or medication um, medications for opioid use disorder. They also support uh, care continuity and risk reduction for patients by coordinating federal law enforcement actions and public health overdose risk mitigation. So an excellent resource and um, very important to use. So once again, care continuity, warm handoff, 
law enforcement action, care continuity, make sure patients get what they need. So they're continuing to claim even up to 2021. Nowhere do they say this program is set up to do this, but it's not working. They don't say it. Who that was a nonprofit? That's from Asto. So Asto is a nonprofit and they're in charge of like, um, they, they do a lot of other things too, but they're in charge of the clinic closures. Closures. They've joined with ORRP and they do these webinars, kind of like Project Echo joined with ORRP. So Asto did these series of webinars in 2021 and this was one of the webinars that they did. I don't know if they know that it doesn't work. I really don't. We have two more. The next one is, this is a recent one actually. This is from March of 2021. This is a New York Attorney General discussing ORRP. We love the, the New York Attorney Generals, don't we? My final slide. So look at this I slide. Over to look at the slide he has up there, Claudia. Opioid rapid helpful training on providing assistance to patients of active providers. And this is Richard Stern. Yep. Opioid rapid response program, March 2021 presentation. Is, uh, a concern many of you may have is if you prosecute a, a doctor for opioids who's actively prescribing uh, what's going to happen to his patients and his or her patients, and uh, some of you may have heard about this very helpful training uh, from HHSOIG from a few days ago, uh, there are resources available to take care of that. Okay, so there are resources to take care of that. Again, making it mm -hmm. sound like patients don't remain abandoned, right? Mm -hmm. So that was in 2021. The most recent one that I found was about six months ago. This is at a recent DEA CDC webinar that they did about, OR well, it wasn't just about ORRP, but they included ORRP in this presentation. Another partnership that's been included Thanks to our DEA colleagues for this one is called the Opioid Rapid Response Program. And it really is in response to a public health DEA partnership when it comes to disruption. Hold on, let me go back. Okay, this is the CDC person. I forget what her name was, but she was speaking for the CDC. The next person you're going to hear talking to her is a DEA agent. That's Justin Woods. Remember him? That's what this Oh, is. Justin. I think Justin's yeah. still there. I think, yeah, this Another is recent. That's been in she was referring to, to provide 
continuity of care. I think sometimes we get labeled as the big bad DEA, but there's a lot of thought and a lot of communication with folks like yourself and, and trusted state partners where we're trying to make sure that patients continue to get care that they need. So the next part I was going to do was just clips from Stephanie, mostly explaining what they want ORRP to be, but I'm going to put that off to the next time because Mm -hmm. what I want to do now is I want to show just a few clips here. Now that you heard them say repeatedly that ORRP is a thing. I also do want to say this first though, that I have about 15 times that I found it in writing in addition to these clips where they claimed that it works. I have it all organized. I was going to read it to you, but I think it's going to be too much to read it. So I'm just going to include that in the show notes, all of these links and people could read it if they want to, because it's really like 15 times of the very same thing over the course of 2019 to 2023, where they make the same claims over and over and over the same ones that you just heard. So I'm not going to read those like I originally planned. But I would like to, we have one, two, three, we have just four clips on this section that I want to, I want to go through. And this section is showing how people at ORRP view chronic pain patients. I want to show you what they say about us, because this is part of the problem, because this is how you can tell they've gotten their training from people like Kaladi, Yearling, Stater, the DEA, CDC, Roger Chow, you can tell who taught them about us because of of how they talk about us. So, okay, so we talked about ASTO before. So this next group, the next three quotes are from ASTO themselves. Again, another video. Let's see. Let me pull up this first one here. I think the issue, what you're saying is exactly right. And the, the goal is to get the patients onto safer medications, right? I mean, a lot the, the the cases that we're involved in, the patients are are not necessarily being given um, good medical care. Who is she to say that? She has is a she master's a in public okay. health. No, um, and that's exactly when we talk about care continuity. It's almost like I hate saying that because it's actually not just care continuity, better care. We need them to have better care in a lot of these cases. And but the important thing is you know, making sure that the, whoever is inheriting those patients understands the complexity of, um, of tapering benzos, of tapering a patient who's on, you know. It's all about the tapering, Claudia. It's how all about the tapering. approach the possibility of tapering a patient who's on benzos and opioids? Which do you do first? Things like that. Those are the things that actually our rapid echo focuses specifically on. And also just how do you discuss that? How do you talk about kind of realistic expectations about pain, living, you know, um, talking, motivational interviewing techniques and things like that. I mean, there's a lot that has to be approached, but, and it's not to just continue the care that they were being, that they were receiving. So this is the woman who is running the opioid rapid response program, who is supposed to be helping states set up to find continuity of care. And immediately she's saying, this isn't really continuity of care. This is about getting them off their medication and onto safer meds. But who is she to make that claim, considering the studies showing how many, 15, regardless of dose and duration, regardless of like combination of medication, it is Mm -hmm. much more dangerous to force them off than to keep them on. But right there without meaning to, she shows you what their program really is about, right? I mean, to mm-hmm. me, she did anyway. All right, let me get this next clip up here. Um, I also just want to highlight, you know, something that I didn't emphasize enough, I think, is this issue of, because- Listen to this, Claudia. Listen to what she says here. It's related, but it's this issue of, it's, 
you know, when we, we leverage our public health, you know, overdose prevention um, resources and our behavioral health and treatment resources, and it can be really easy to offer like that, the, a helpline, let's say, what do we do when our helpline that is provided is primarily used to offering um, treatment? You know, I can offer you any treatment and we have chronic pain patients or patients who really, they even have stigma themselves against people with substance use disorder. Did you get that? What? Chronic pain patients have stigma against people with substance use disorder. Just so you know, that's what she just said, because we're the oppressors. You see, we can't be considered okay. victims because we victimize. They don't want to be kind of told you have a substance use disorder. I wonder why we don't want to be told we have a substance use disorder. Maybe it's because we don't. I don't know. Can you imagine that could possibly be the reason? You need treatment. They're not there yet. They're not there yet. So we're mm. seeing what the actual goal of this program is, and right? I think we need to figure out creative um, solutions to offering help to people. You know, this whole issue of meeting people where they are. That often means, you know, meeting someone where they are who they may not have, they may have some depend physical dependency, they may not have substance use disorder, they may not want to be told that they need treatment for substance use disorder. So how, you know, how are we training the folks who are answering those helplines to really be able to meet the patient exactly where they are and just get them to someone who can assess their health care needs anew? you know, because they, they really need a new health assessment to figure out even where they are emotionally, physically, um, and medically. Emotionally. So you can see she's been completely indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. Oh, patients, pain patients stigmatize people with OUD. They're not there yet where they're willing to admit they have substance use disorder. They're not willing to accept right. treatment yet. So we got to be mm. creative in how mm. we get to convince them right. to accept. Because it's she never once says here, it's very possible these patients were stable on their medication and we need to figure out a way to keep them on their medication. Mm -hmm. Never once stated at all in anything that I've listened to about her, not one time, that when she and I spoke about it on the phone and she said part of ORRP is joining to help educate doctors on how to prescribe. And I said, great, can I give you the name of some doctors who are reasonable? I was going to give Dr. Colas, Dr. Kertes, doctors in the middle. I wasn't going to give doctors who prescribe huge numbers, you know, more in the middle. And she's like, no, but she's like, we don't need it. But do you know, I love is Dr. Don Stater out of Colorado. I was oh. like, so yeah, yeah. So right there, that showed me right. I, I, everything I needed to know. There's just two more clips from this section, and then we'll finish this this uh, second part of ORRP. So this next clip is also with Asto. This is Dr. Phil Coffin. Now, Dr. Phil Coffin is usually pretty reasonable. I think he works in overdose prevention. He used to be in harm reduction. I actually think he's collaborated with some people that we know, like Dr. Desgupta in the past. And I think he has like a consulting firm now or something where he he helps train doctors on taking these patients, something like that. I, I'm not fully sure what he does, but listen to what he says in this in this presentation. A shared decision-making piece or the sort of patient-centered care design, um, care in, in these circumstances, we talk about, we like to talk about, you know, having the patient describe the risks and benefits. You got to hear from the patient, what are they actually getting out of opioids in this circumstance? And, uh, and then, you know, you can talk about the risks like, hey, you got your knee, you got your knee replacement six months ago. 
you really shouldn't need this many opioids. Something is going on. We need to address something else. Um, or, you know, hey, you've been in the emergency department with severe constipation four times this year. Um, this is induced by opioids and our therapies haven't been able to reduce that. We need to cut down on opioids. So the provider is going to want to taper opioids. Patients going to want to continue opioids. Transitioning to buprenorphine is a really great option. In See, there we go. Doctor's going to want to taper. Patient's going to want to stay on. Let's talk about yeah, transitioning to but bu. it's not universally helpful for everyone. And that's important to recognize. I'm glad he said that. He's usually pretty well. balanced. Um, so... We always talk about using motivational interviews. This is what I want you to listen to this part, because this part surprised me that he actually said this out loud, because this is the part they don't tend to say out loud, but he mm -hmm. actually did. So they're talking about motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing is actually a great psychological technique used to encourage patients to want to change behavior that could be harmful. But mm -hmm. they've hijacked this technique to make it to be what they mean, and it's weaponized Doing, against pain patients. Validating the patient's experience, recognizing that you're the one in control. You're the one who has the power with that prescription pad or e-pad. And uh, you got to, as much as you can, empower the patient to participate in the treatment planning. And, you know, ultimately yes. motivational interviewing, what you're trying to do in a, in a crass way, you're trying to get the person to come up with the idea that you want them to do. So if you can so that means, it's called motivational interviewing. Yeah, and it's a great psychological concept, but they've hijacked it to mean you gonna Wait convince the patient to taper. The only time that would be great is when I was trying to convince my nine-year-old to do something. So motivational interviewing is great for people who, like for instance, if you have severe anxiety, PTSD, there are certain um, habits you're, you've taken on that are harmful to yourself. So you discuss yeah. these habits mm -hmm. and you talk to your therapist and you, they, they can together you could decide which habits you're going to try to slow down first. I mean, for instance, say you're, I don't know, you're, you have an eating disorder and you weigh yourself 30 right. times a day I and that's harmful that. to your psyche. And then you can say to the patient, okay, like, can you understand how that's harmful? What can we do to try to address it? Maybe let's cut it down to 25 times tomorrow right. and see how this is good. But, but how would that, I mean, now imagine doing what is it's called weaponized. motivational it's, yeah it's weaponized yeah it's weaponized what if they do it they don't use it with people with addiction they don't say to them right. oh well i'm going to convince you that if you you know if you relapse then you're going to stop your suboxone because we want you to blah 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 they would never do that it's just reserved for pain patients, we have a separate set of rules, a separate set of stigma. Everything's allowed. We're not allowed to be upset. We have all of these rules on us, and it's really, really not fair. And we don't have people standing up for us. That's called, what is it called again? Motivational interviewing, MI. I have a whole series of it that I'm going to do for a, an entire podcast to show you. I have clips of these people talking about motivational interviewing and how they've weaponized it and they joke these about are, it. These are yeah. conniving, these are manipulators. No, I was actually surprised to hear him to hear him say that because I mean, it's not funny. It's not funny what's happening. It's just, I don't know. So we just have one more clip. This is from, I always forget the, what this stands for. So CO. It used to be COSSAP. They changed it to UP. Comprehensive Opioid Stimulant and Substance Use Program. It used to be Substance Abuse Program, but of course, abuse is stigmatizing. So everyone took abuse out of their title. So now it's Comprehensive Opioid Stimulant and Substance Use Program. This is a program uh, funded by BJA, Bureau of Justice Assistance. They do a lot with PDMP. They do a lot with uh, PDMP education. And so that's what this last, Stephanie did a, 
lecture with these people. This is the last clip of this this one section, and then we'll be done with this part two. We really do take um, a, ha a harm reduction approach um, and encourage our, our partners to do so as well. And and part of that is recognizing, you know, that just because us. Uh, Listen to her laugh about it because mm -hmm. it's so funny. It's always so freaking funny. What's so funny? Somebody's lost access to their <laughs> clinician does not mean that they are um, going to suddenly be ready to discuss tapering or treatment or <laughs> anything. What is so funny, Claudia? Or is it just that makes them so uncomfortable because they know they're killing people that they have to laugh? Um, in fact, you know, prescribing guidelines suggest that those that needs to be carried out with shared decision making with the patient. And so part of this is who can kind of at least just express that they care about them and and not start the conversation off with we got to get you off these meds. Right? Okay, so I need to say something about this really fast. When I spoke to her on the phone, she was like, half of what pain patients who are abandoned want, they just want to know that someone cares. I was like, no, Stephanie, that's that's not half of what they want. They want a doctor who can keep giving them what they that they were stable on. So you pretending to care is not going to help these patients. I'm sorry. And then this is another part of motivational interviewing that's important for people to understand that they all talk about. They do it, Valentine, Franklin, Sullivan, Kaladni, they all talk about motivational interviewing for pain patients. They all say, Coelho, they all say, at the first meeting with a patient, that first appointment, it's very important to make the patient think you're going to continue their medication. Get okay. them to trust you, get them to feel like you care, and then the second appointment is when you pull the rug out, the rug out from under them, just so you know, that's how um, it works, Claudia. Because you will lose them. And so what they need is actually linkages to care and resources and someone to say, I'm going to work with you and we're going to go through this together. And we may need to discuss getting you on a safer medication, but I'm not safer. going to abandon you and I'm not going to force you um, to stop taking these medications right away. So right that's away. really the issue. Right so it's a, it's a process and that is- The assumption that lowering prescribing, that lowering opioids is safer is a fallacy. There is no evidence is behind super that. Complicated. There just isn't. Tapering off of benzodiazepines is incredibly challenging. This is also why it's hard to find clinicians willing to accept those patients. It's messy. It's it's really hard. But this is, you know, meeting them where they are, working with them, and understanding that this is hard for them and it forcing them puts them at greater risk of other, you know, adverse health effects. And that is what we're trying to avoid. Well, you failed miserably, mm -hmm. Stephanie, you failed because we haven't avoided it at all. Is it just me or can you tell like the tone of how they look at pain patients and what they want? It gets worse. Wait till we do the next part. Wait till you hear that part because it's, it's, it's even worse than this, but I wanted to do it in phases. She hates pain patients. It's clear. Right? She hates pain patients. She thinks it's funny. You mm. got to get them lower. You got to pretend to care to get mm -hmm. them to trust you and then get them on safer meds. If you tell a patient, I'm not going to abandon you, but I'm going to make you go on safer meds. It's the very same thing. Look, yes. A slow taper would be better than an abrupt, rapid cessation, but we can't even find anyone to do that. So all of this is spoken about in theory. Claudia, it reminds me of all of this academia. Like these academia, they go from meeting to meeting mm. and celebration, giving each other awards mm -hmm. and giving presentations mm -hmm. and pictures and applause and all of this, but it's all, to me, it's, it's, like an, it's like playing Monopoly. It's like an imaginary world. Like who is addressing what's 
actually happening? I'm not talking about people with addiction. Everyone's addressing that. They have so many people, which is great. It's It needs to happen. But Claudia, we got eight to 12 million in this country on daily opioids for pain. Right now, there's two to three million with OUD. Who is focusing just on us? Who? Mm -hmm. That is not saying we need to cut everyone off. Who is Because I can't find one person who's simply just focusing on us and not also people with addiction. When I think of academia, I remember that expression, publish or perish. So they get published yes. and then they travel and they, they meet yes. with other published authors. Yes. And they do. They live in an imaginary world. Yes. Right? They're, these yep. are not... These aren't realist. They're all I went, and I, I have to say this because I studied classical voice and my voice teacher's husband was a professor and he always smelled funny and their yeah. house smelled funny <laughs> and it was always messy. And yeah. they lived in that same imaginary world where their thoughts that they lived in their own thoughts. They were not realistic people. And I think when I think that's all, that's all we're, we're swimming amongst nothing but crazy academic. Is it academics? Is that I don't the word? It's academia, 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 academia. That sounds right. That sounds academia. right. Or is that yeah. macadamia nuts? Now I'm not sure which. Mm, I, like Maybe that's macadamia. Why. I like macadamia. I like macadamia nuts. I would end up in the ER if I ate nuts like that though. Oof, yeah, I eat a handful my... of nuts every day. Maybe that's our, why your Crohn's is so our, bad. Our listeners, our listeners are like, what What? What happened? Maybe this that's is... why your Crohn's is so bad. Because no. you eat a handful of nuts every day. I can't. I, I, no. Nuts, I can't eat popcorn, but I can eat nuts. Not me. Not me. If I eat nuts, ooh, I end up in the hospital. One time, I love nuts. During, one time during Christmas, I someone gave me like peanut brittle, and mm. it was so good. And I ended up in the emergency room, and they were like, "What happened?" I was like, "I got a gift." And yeah, yeah, here I am. No, I I can't. Anyway, and the other part of the problem is here is the nonprofits because when you're a nonprofit, you normally survive on donations and grants. So when people take grants, then they have to cater to the foundation mm -hmm. that gave them the grant, which is why I actually am glad we didn't get the grants we applied Fuck for. Fuck that. Not me. I'm never going to be beholden to anybody. I mean, mm -mm. Claudia, with the way that we that that I was treated, that you were treated, that the fact mm. that this woman called screaming at you, called screaming at me, and nobody would help us with this fact made me really, really sad. And it made me think twice about who maybe I can or can't trust. She was abusive to you. She was abusive to me. And then she trashed our names. And specifically in the FOIA, yeah. said chronic pain patient advocates can't come to these these webinars. Mm. Not only did they say chronic pain patient advocates can't go, they also were conniving back and forth mm. on how mm -hmm. to keep us out by right. lying. Sneaks. And there were sneaks. Yeah. You're like, well, we'll just tell them this. Mm. We'll tell them this. Yeah. And then they never would give us a recording and they were discussing on how to not give us the recording. So yeah, because that's going to help chronic pain. She told them we were not like, we're not real advocate. What are we then? What, what is the ulterior motive? David I Yerling know. said it too. David Yerling put it in they quotes. They always do. They put it in quotes. They all think we're part of the pain lobby, the opioid lobby, the whatever well, lobby. I, well, I don't even know what that means. The pain Purdue. lobby. So, so, so okay. okay. Part of the whole Purdue like lawsuit is there was some, I forget what they called it, but there was a group of pain organizations that supposedly also did take some money from pharma, but I think they were legitimate. They really were. I mean, so what? like what's wrong with that? Exactly. Just like interventional pain takes money from spinal cords, from Medtronics. They don't say they're 
lobby the, you know they say they're legitimate but so they this is how they discount any it's the industry funding nonsense We're how about all, asam asam they're uh, they're solely funded by an opioid maker by Indiv- oh no one cares about that they're solely funded by indivr and that new bill that white house just mm. presented or sponsored mm. or whatever that would make it permanent for just suboxone mm-hmm. moud to be mm-hmm. telehealth permanently and mm. asam applauded them i'm like mm. I'm, I'm sure you did applaud them asam because indivir is paying you a pretty penny to applaud them but no one cares about mm. indivir and, and i Suboxone. wonder how much asam donates to sheldon white house's campaign i don't think they can donate um, more sh- than five thousand at he a gets time a lot see you can't see the they put it on opensecrets.com they put it in It'll be the pharmaceutical and medical device industry you'll see. You don't see this which ones. You don't mm-hmm. see which organizations. Uh, so it's hard to know, but I'm going to see what I can find out. We can FOIA. We can submit a FOIA, I would imagine, to see what their campaign donations are. They're a government agency. So, I mean, Open Secrets has it to a certain extent, but I'm sure we can see more. And Gary Mandel, he's so funded by Indivier and Alchermaze and Adapt Pharma and everything else. That And Pasira mm-hmm. specifically. No one cares about industry funding. The only reason they protect to care about industry funding is because it's a way to discount anything. And so when we had that rally the other day, of course, they're going to say that we're industry funded because they don't know how to address the concerns. Hmm. They don't know how to address it They because they, they won't because they're wrong. They're lying or they're wrong or they don't understand why we're volunteers. Yeah, maybe it's that. They don't understand why we've stu- stuck around so long, but we stuck around mm. so long because mm. people are suffering and dying and I mm-hmm. can't in good conscience not fight for their rights. Because I don't care what anybody says. They never banked on us coming along. No, they didn't. They never. thought we would stop. They thought yep. we would stop. So this mm-hmm. is what, I, in my mind, this is what Kaladni did and these people. They were like, look, these people, they're just addicts. You know, Mm -hmm. the best Mm -hmm. thing you could do is to stop their medication. Now they're going to come forward and say they're hurt, but this is just their addiction talking. They're Mm going to get angry. And the the, um, organizations that are fighting, they're just funded by industry. So best not listen to them. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they'll they'll stop eventually. But the mm-hmm. smartest thing we ever did is to stop fighting with emotion and stop crying and telling them our sob stories because they don't mm-hmm. care and start fighting with facts. It's my favorite thing in the entire world is to show the world their lies with their own words. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. It, it actually, that dopamine hit that Lemke always talks about. That's my, that's my addiction. Right, I'm right. addicted to showing their lies with their own words because it's yeah. so easy to do. They make it so easy. You know, what's your, anyway. if, you're, if you're watching this podcast, what's your dopamine hit? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Right? Yeah. What's your dopamine what, hit? What gives you that, yeah, that rush of excitement? I know Carrie and I talk a lot about it. And when we hear their lies, we're like, oh, like I listened to a podcast the other day about that Kuhn versus Walden lawsuit. Uh, these lawyers continue to put out new podcasts. That's the lawsuit where they sued the hospital system because the guy got addicted and their family, their wife got a divorce and they made $17 million. He didn't overdose or anything, but they, because he got addicted and divorced, they won 17 million. And so mm-hmm. they were talking about how they tore apart the other expert witness, right? And the biggest thing they said was this guy couldn't even see patients because he was so much an expert witness. And they were like, that's such a red flag. If they're not seeing patients anymore, and this is what they do for a living, they're easy to discount. And then Carrie found, which I'm going to do a video on it, Carrie found um, an, a, an older interview about Kaladni, where Kaladni said, I actually had to stop seeing patients to be an expert witness. So huh. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. They say one thing and then they mm. do the exact same thing they say is bad and uh, it's fun to, to see. But I want to hear before we wrap up, what is what do you think about these quotes you heard about the about ORRP? I think they're liars. And I think but in I mean, their do mind. You agree? Do you agree in the clips that they were making it sound like it works, though? Well, yeah, because they're professional liars. Yeah. And they have a job and their job is to bamboozle America. Yeah. into believing that what they're doing is going to help the American people. They're all liars. Yeah. Right? That's it. Yeah, that's right. And these, and, are, these are terrible, yep. terrible human beings. And the very last words that Stephanie Rebell said to me, Ava was sitting to the right of me. I was pulling out of the grocery store. I was at the red light. And she said, you're a terrible human being. And she hung the phone up on me. You told me she, she was crazy. But yeah. when I spoke with Stephanie, she sounded unhinged. She did. And do you remember, I'll, I was in Walmart with, with Livy and I remember driving home and you calling me and saying, she just called me a terrible person. I was like, why did she call you? And then I looked down at my phone and saw that I had a voicemail from her, which I still have to this day where she, she threatened us. She mm -hmm. said in that voicemail, if you don't remove this TikTok, it's going to be very, very bad for your cause. Now, there wasn't a TikTok, and I explained that entire situation in the um, part oh, one. And here's the thing. People are going to say, well, why didn't you try to get help? Why didn't you try to fix this the adult way? I did. We it's did. It's been two years, and nobody would yeah. help us fix this. I felt threatened. You felt threatened. We tried to get help. Nobody would help. So this is all we can do. This is the only power we have. And so now we're exposing it to you. And did you see CDC kind of got some heat yesterday? Their people are pissed. They did some, I think it was COVID. They did some guidelines again and they mm -hmm. were um, just accused. Someone did a lawsuit against them or, or filing a lawsuit against the CDC because they had a stacked committee with only one view. And they mm -hmm. didn't have any true experts on the committee writing the guideline. Huh. What a shock. I put it on uh, Patreon today. But who's who's even getting back? I mean, no, I, I don't know either. anybody. Well, I think it was for that. But nobody, nobody, I mean, who cares? The CDC is not going to get in trouble because they never, right. they're never held accountable. No. You know, the CDC really is there for litigation. They are mm -hmm. there for industry funding, for litigation. They are not there to protect people. And I truly believe that. Let me see if I could find the, a storm is gathering around a CDC committee for its controversial infection. Oh, it's infection control guidance. So it's a revising the infection control guidelines for healthcare facilities. They didn't have any true experts and they had a stacked committee as always, because that's what they do so well. They violated FACA just like they did for the CDC guidelines. But anyway, so thank you for doing this with me, Claudia. Hopefully mm. we could do the next one next week, but um, we'll finish it up either in one or two more parts. Uh, but we've been talking about ORRP for so many years, and I just wanted to break it down to people so they, for people, so they can really see who they are, who they say they are, and uh, what they're really saying about patients behind the scenes. Yeah. So, thanks for tuning in for this episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. Thanks. Bye. Have a good day. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like the full unedited video version of this podcast including extra content such as the Freedom of Information Act response that we discussed in part one, please head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash the doctor patient forum. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, 
please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. Just a quick disclaimer, the information contained in this podcast should not be considered medical or legal advice.